John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at imbuecbd.com. That's imbuecbd.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 81 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter, at Individual One Pod. That's at individual, the number one pod. About uh, once a quarter, I interview my uh, good friend from Louisville, Kentucky, who is a Democratic congressman, uh, and uh, he uh, gives us the straight story of what really is and is not happening, and I've been very much looking forward to speaking him to him today because so much has transpired, including, obviously, the impeachment of Donald Trump uh, since the last time we talked, and if you are unaware, I actually played a fairly significant role in uh, shifting Congressman Yarmouth's opinion on uh, impeachment because about uh, 13, 14 months ago, I pleaded with him on my personal podcast, The World According to Zig, to change his position in favor of impeachment, and he, in fact, did that and, and credited some of my thinking with uh, causing him to change his position. So always great to talk to him, and so we're going to speak to him now. Chairman of the House Budget Committee and, in my view, the last honest man in politics, also a, a longtime friend of mine, Congressman John Yarmouth. Welcome back to the podcast. John, always good to be with you. And there's always tons to talk about, so let's get right to it. Uh, you and I have... I can't imagine there's anything to talk about. <laughs> well, you and I have a, a, quite a history on the issue of impeachment, and uh, and you voted uh, to impeach the, the president, which made me very, very happy. But I want to go back to before your impeachment vote, and the decision 
to go very narrow as opposed to broad in those articles of impeachment. I am skeptical of whether or not that was the right way to go from a precedent standpoint. I understood it from a political perspective. Could you explain your understanding of why that decision was made and what your thoughts on that were? Okay, well, first of all, let me say that I was uh, one who initially believed we should have gone broader, that we should have at least taken some of the um, obstruction of justice um, charges from the Mueller report and, mm-hmm. and used those as articles. And then I changed my mind, and, I, and the reason I changed my mind was a conversation I had with uh, someone I know uh, pretty well here, um, who's not in politics, and I'm, when I tell this story, I will get to what, the, what I think the, the, the thinking on the other side was, on the narrow side. So I was with this, this guy who doesn't follow politics very much, but he's a reasonably intelligent guy, and um, conservative watches Fox, and we started talking about the, um, the investigations, and he said, well, they ought to go after Biden just as much as they go after Trump. And in terms of um, you know, ex- essentially extortion by bribery. Right. And I said, I said, why do you say that? And he said, well, what Biden did was, was probably worse than what Trump did. So I asked him to explain why. And he had the Biden um, statement about withholding money from Ukraine uh, totally backwards. Right. I mean, he said... Well, he tried, to, he, fi- he tried to fire the prosecutor who was prosecuting his son. Right. So he had it just backwards. Right. And I realized at that point, if something that was actually that easy to understand confused a relatively smart person, if we had to do that with eight counts or ten counts, we'd, get, we'd lose the public completely. And in other words, if we had to go into the weeds and explain all of the events that, that happened... And, and I think that was the overriding um, factor in deciding to go narrow, oh. that you had to have one where the facts were pretty clear and it didn't require a lot of explanation. Okay, but do you believe that the person you spoke to is at all open to ever supporting Donald Trump's impeachment? Um, he might be, actually. Really? He might okay. be. It he doesn't, again, he doesn't really follow politics that closely, but he's... And, so, I mean, he's not, you know, he's a friend of mine, and he doesn't give me grief, so. Right, okay. Uh, yeah. I guess, I guess my, here's my, my rebuttal to that, and you and I talked about this even way before impeachment was technically on the table. I've always felt like the biggest issue here, because I never believed he was going to be removed, that the, the most important part of this is the precedent element, that you're, you're trying to lay down the groundwork that at least acknowledges that what the president has done is wrong and that future presidents should not see this as somehow a, a, a situation where it's okay to engage in this behavior and Congress will just sit on their hands and do nothing. And so in in a way, John, didn't Congress essentially say that everything in the Mueller report is acceptable presidential behavior? I mean, isn't that going to be the historical interpretation? I think it will. Um, and and that's a shame. Uh, I just finished reading a book called Crime in Progress, which was written by the two guys from Fusion GPS, mm-hmm. and it was that was basically what the entire book was about, or a significant portion of it was 
how badly the Mueller report was um, mischaracterized and, and misunderstood by the public and actually how it uh, corroborated much of what was in the Steele uh, dossier. But, um, you know, I, I, I totally... I totally agree with your your theory there. Uh, I think you're absolutely right. But again, I think the the more pra- practical course was to do this. Now go narrow. Now on the other side of that, uh, and I've said this publicly, I think it's pretty obvious that if if all the president had done was what's in those two articles of impeachment, he would not have been impeached. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the you know the entire record with the emoluments clause with myriad instances of abuse of, of power uh, that uh, yeah, I guess I, I to, take, to take this out of the theoretical and put it in the practical, I'm just uh-huh. astonished that his answers to Mueller, his written answers to Mueller, that were obviously written by his attorneys, uh, there are numerous obvious lies in there. Those are perjurious. Bill Clinton was impeached for alleged perjury to a grand jury, and I was, as you know, John, a huge Clinton critic. And to this day, I'm not 100% sure he really perjured himself in front of the grand jury. He, he perjured himself in, in the Apollo Jones deposition, but he didn't actually end up getting impeached for that. He got impeached for perjury to a grand jury. It's astonishing to me that not only did he get impeached, that hardly anyone ever talks about that. What's your view on it? No, I think you're. I think you're totally right. I mean, I, I I'm not necessarily proud of this, but I actually wrote a, a column back then uh, in '98 or '99 saying I thought the I thought he was entitled to lie to the grand jury <laughs> because <laughs> because, they, I, because the two theories, and I, I I wouldn't try to defend them now, but um, one is I didn't think they had the right to ask him the question, and secondly, I didn't think that. Um, um, he he knew that what he said before the grand jury was going to be public, so he didn't have the guarantee of confidentiality that most witnesses before the grand jury have. Okay, but I mean but, we can argue about Clinton. I'm just saying that it's astonishing yeah. to me that Trump and I, I would argue that his perjury is way worse because he had months to think about what he was going to write. <laughs> I mean, Clinton got hit, you know, in the Paula Jones deposition, totally by surprise. Uh, right. and, and, yeah, and this was an open book test. Right, exactly. And so therefore, when you cheat on an open book test, the punishment ought to be greater. Uh, um, and oh, I'm not good. I totally agree with you. Okay, well, all right. Totally agree. Well, I'm, so I'm frustrated by that element of, of impeachment. Interestingly, I don't even know if you know this, but today on ABC, uh, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, essentially your boss, uh, said that she's open to further articles of impeachment. Uh, can you shed any light on what that might mean? Well, I, I think that what she is saying, yes, is that we can we have two or three committees that continue to investigate uh, many of the Trump activities and many of many of the the uh, allegations that have been brought up by different people, and that and we also have several uh, court actions uh, that are hopefully about to conclude they're they're through the court of appeals and they're either the supreme court will hear them or not but 
uh, re- related to release of tax returns, release of business records, so forth. So she's basically said there there's a possibility that other things will turn up that we so, would uh, we, we would uh, impeach him for. Okay, so this is theoretical. There's nothing that is at the top of her mind that this might right, actually happen. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. Now, as we go along here, I, I want to go back one more time to when this. The, there was a sea change since we're talking about Nancy. I mean, Na- Nancy has uh, has at least been perceived, although you pushed back on this when I asked you about it last time you were on, perceived as being against impeachment. Can you take us back to, the, the, do you remember, was there a moment when it changed for Nancy with regard to this Ukrainian situation? I mean, is there was there yeah. an actual moment that you said, oh, my, oh, wow, this is actually going to happen? And, and what do you think changed? I think when the seven members from um, seven freshman Democratic members from Trump uh, from t- districts that Trump carried uh, came out in in tandem and said they were for impeachment, that that was the moment. Because I think what Nancy's overriding concern was she had 63 new members of the Democratic caucus, and she was you know I'm sh- I'm sure Nancy from day one knew where this was going. <laughs> but she said, I'm not going to hang out 63 members, put them on the spot until they're comfortable with where we're going. Mm-hmm. And I think that moment when the seven, who would probably be as, as vulnerable as any of the freshmen, came out and said, we're going to vote for the inquiry, that that's when, uh, that's when she felt good about it. All right, so I want to take you to the, to the vote now and the debate before that vote. And... Um First of all, were you as surprised and disappointed as I was that there was not, if you take away Justin Amash, and I'm not sure I understand why he's not referred to as a Republican. I mean, he was he was elected as a Republican, but for some reason he's no longer perceived as a Republican. Uh, there was not one even retiring member of the Republican Party who was willing to vote in favor of impeachment, because going back to Clinton, there were, I think, four or five Democrats uh, in the House who voted for Bill Clinton's impeachment. Can you take us through what your perception of that was? And was there anybody behind the scenes who was saying, boy, I'd really like to vote for this, but I just can't for whatever reason? Um, There were a few, but not many. I mean, I would say a handful at most. And and And, were you surprised or not? Oh, yeah, well, I'm constantly surprised. But, you know, on the other hand, there are no Republicans now in the House that are in um, even marginal districts. They're all in safe Republican districts, which means they they go home every weekend, and all they hear is people saying they need to stand up for Trump. Right. So they're all, they're all worried about primary challenges. And um, you know, to tell you the truth, surprised the hell out of me the other day when Matt Gates did what he did um, to come out for the uh, the War Powers Amendment, because he's been one of Trump's staunchest supporters, and Matt's told me just what I said, that he goes home every weekend and people beat up on him for not supporting Trump enough, and if if he's not supporting Trump enough, I don't know I don't know what, <laughs> who, who could be. And he's going to be punished for that, I'm sure. And he's um, going to be punished, yeah. Right, but but uh, but but even the retiring members, John, that's the part I don't get. What? Why are these retiring members? Why did they give a damn? I know it's 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 hard to understand. And there's some people who are retiring who are really solid members. A guy like Phil Rowe from Tennessee, a really decent guy. Um, he's you know 74, decided to do this. 
uh, has the best of motives and uh, has has never been one of the rabid uh, right wing Republicans. There, there, there are ten or twelve of them. Rob Woodall from Georgia, um, who's become a good friend of mine. Uh, yeah, they have nothing to lose. Why not do it? And, and I know that they are very much upset with what Trump's done. But you don't have an explanation for why? I don't have an explanation. Okay. No. All right, so let, let's go to that debate, because that debate, uh, to me, was incredibly disturbing. Um, we've, I, mean, I, I know you've seen, you've been in Congress now a long time, uh, and I've watched it for a very long time, and there's been contentious debates. But I don't ever recall a debate of this magnitude where the two sides were not just disagreeing. They were in completely different worlds and uh and and there was you almost couldn't even have a, a debate or a conversation because no one was even agreeing on what how the, what the day of the week was uh did, did you get the same sense uh, and have you ever seen anything quite that divided uh probably not i can't rem- remember seeing anything that divided and that was you know what we saw during all of the the hearings in the intelligence committee and then in the judiciary committee uh both, both sides talking about totally different issues, and um, you know the Republicans were doing everything to change the subject and uh, to divert attention to other crazy things, and uh, the Democrats were actually talking about what the president had done. So, and that's the way the floor debate was, and then it just got nastier and nastier. Um, you had people like Doug Collins. Is the ranking Republican on the Judiciary Committee, who the other day, I mean, he retracted it or apologized for it, but said that Democrats all believe in, in that, that uh, Soleimani was a good guy and we all support terrorists. And, you know, that kind of rhetoric, I don't, I don't know where it, you know, it, it certainly doesn't help anybody. And uh, I can't imagine that even in Doug Collins' district in Georgia that it actually that people don't think that's going way over the top. Doug Collins, for my money, is is was a complete jackass during that entire debate, and yeah. um, and I, I got to imagine that a lot of Democrats, uh, maybe even some Republicans, uh, agree with that assessment. But how behind the scenes, John? Can you give us a sense of? What was it like behind the scenes? Was it was it there? Uh, was it almost a humorous situation, or was there actual uh, emotional, passionate anger on on either side? Because my sense was that this, where the Republicans were, was so off the charts, so bizarre that you almost had to laugh at it. Or was there behind the scenes some real negative, strong emotions going on? Well, I think there were strong emotions going on. I know on our side, but it was it was um, the emotion was sadness. It wasn't anger. It was just really a, a sense of of despair that this is what um, the process had come down to. That we've got a le- legitimate constitutional process that we took very seriously, and the Republicans were so dismissive of it and so um, so willing to to avoid the subject basically and uh, create false demons and uh, so we we weren't angry as much as sad well 
I don't know how Adam Schiff doesn't doesn't lose his mind. I mean, the, <laughs> I mean the attacks that he takes that are oh. so delusional. I mean, he does. I mean, I know that he's public enemy number one on the right, and I just laugh. I mean, uh, because I, I think he's a smart guy. I think he's handled this situation. I mean, no one, no one could handle this situation perfectly because he's been under extraordinary pressure for a very long time, trying to please a lot of very different types of groups of people. But by and large, I think Schiff has done has done a pretty darn good job and and has withstood some of the most horrendous attacks that I can recall as a congressman of his uh, sort taking uh, and 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 to my recollection hasn't lost his cool at any moment uh, I know I wouldn't have been able to do that under <laughs> under uh, what he what he was taking and and I agree with your assessment of sadness I mean it was it was comical at times it angered me at times but you're right the bottom line was just sad that all all of this in order to try to protect this con man who doesn't even agree with them on things that's <laughs> isn't that the most amazing part of this i mean oh, yeah well we you know we're in totally uncharted waters here and have been for three years and and you know i um you've been as outspoken as anybody on on the other side of the spectrum um in and uh Calling Trump out for what he is, but can I say one thing about about Adam Schiff? Sure. Not not only was he, I mean, he made one mistake, and that was his attempted satire when he uh, kind of characterized the the uh, transcript mm-hmm. of the phone call. But not only has Adam had to put up with all of this stuff since he's been in charge of the investigation, he had to put up with all of the abuses and the nonsense of Devin Nunez when Nunez was was sabotaging democracy as as the head of the intelligence committee mm-hmm. and and changed the entire nonpartisan uh perspective that that committee has always had and adam was adam was the ranking democrat during that time and he had to deal with and try to fight back with Nunez during, uh, Nunez with all, all that time and so he deserves tons of credit I, I tend to agree with that, and, and and by the way, I mean, I mean, I've never had a problem with him, but I, I'm, I've never been a fan of his. I mean, he's a he's a Democrat here in a liberal Democrat here in Southern California, but I, I got to tell you, uh, I, overall, I would give him very good grades for how he's handled a very difficult situation. Now, taking this out of the specific of impeachment, although it's certainly related to impeachment, and to the bigger picture, I, I, I um, my biggest of many concerns about Trump, uh, I, I think my most profound or the or the one that worries me the most is that i believe if i had to put this in one sentence i believe that president trump is sowing the seeds for a future for lack of a better term dictatorship in this country and he's doing so for his own selfish uh, purposes his own self-interest and his own defense do do you do you agree in general with that statement i just made yeah, I, th- I think so. And and if the court, as some of this stuff works its way up to the Supreme Court, um, if the court in any way um, validates the power that he has assumed for himself, then it's almost unavoidable that any president's going to take advantage of that. And so it's, it's not just the way he behaves, but the fact that he's packed the court with presumably people who feel similarly. We know he's done that with the Attorney General, and uh, I'm just hoping that uh, 
the the Supreme Court when it gets to when it has to deal with some of these issues will will uh, support the Constitution and not Trump's behavior. Because one of the things that you just said there is really important. It is incredibly rare. It's happened a couple times in the history of the United States, but I think those days are are gone. Where a president will consciously reduce their own power—that's just not in human nature, right? So, yeah, right. so inherently, that's why precedent is so incredibly important. If you give the executive total power over the legislative branch, which is what Trump believes that he has, there's no going back because it's only going to get worse going forward, not to mention all of the norms that Trump has broken just from a cultural and a, and a, and a verbal perspective. You know, the whole persona that he creates uh, is, is basically opening this humongous path for some future tyrant to come in. It might, and by the way, it might not even be that far from now uh, because think, we're living in an era where things happen very, very quickly. That has always been my greatest fear. And I guess the, the great irony here, John, is I also happen to believe, and as a progressive, this might you know be a conflicting uh, factor for you, I happen to believe that it will be a socialist dictatorship because of the role that government is now playing. The government is becoming bigger and bigger, and we're spending all this money even under Trump, as you know, the chairman of the, the budget committee. I mean, do, do you see that scenario as well? I do, and... Uh you know, I, my first term in office, when George Bush said, I am the decider, um, I said, no, you're not. And I had Article One pins made and wore them. Right. And my colleagues, we all wore Article One, and I'm, I'm pulling them out of mothballs now because we're back in that same situation. And, you know, the idea that Trump would essentially dismiss the War Powers Act and the war power that's, grant, that's uh, given to Congress in the uh, Constitution by saying, I'm notifying you by tweet, um, that makes a mockery out of the entire, our entire system, and certainly out of, out of the Constitution and Article One. But that's, you know, the, if he gets away with it, then, and he's going to get away with that, I mean, we're probably not going to be able to pass this War Powers Amendment, although there's a chance we may get four or five Republicans in the Senate to vote for, vote for their version with Mike Lee and, and Rand Paul now on record. But uh, I hope we do. But if he gets away with that and, and the courts uphold some of these other things, yeah, we'll get we're not going to get uh, we're not going to get another fascist. <laughs> I think the odds are we'll get somebody from the other end of the spectrum. Well, I mean, you can argue over definitions, but I mean, yeah. you just reminded me when you said by tweet. I mean, this is a guy who who literally ordered American companies to stop doing business with China via tweet now it didn't work but i mean right. but but he suffered no consequence for that i mean and, and and these things matter because they create new precedent and uh and because of the by the way i think that our obsession with celebrity also plays a role in this the presidency has become so gigantic uh because you know he's the celebrity and you guys in congress generally aren't uh and and so that's what wins the day and to me it's just it's all Heading in a in a very scary direction. Now, last question on impeachment. And by the way, con Congress is at fault for this. Before you know, for over 
several decades now, we've increasingly abdicated our role and, and, and given up a lot of power. Yes. And that's, that's part of the problem. Absolutely correct. Uh, yeah. and, and, but I don't think you ever anticipated there would be a Trump that, that, no. would, that, <laughs> would, that would take advantage of that to the point that he has. Now, last question on impeachment. There's been a lot made of Nancy Pelosi's decision to withhold the articles of impeachment. By the way, are, do we know? I mean, I know there's been reports that those articles this week will now be sent to the Senate. Do you? Do you, can you shed any light on on that? Where we are on that? Yeah, uh, apparently we're going to vote on it on Wednesday, and then um, they would they would go immediately to the to the Senate. Okay, and so we have, we have to have, we have to have a vote to uh, to officially transmit the articles and to name um, managers of the case. Right. That that's a, that requires a separate vote, and that'll be on Wednesday. It's my understanding, and then we'll go right to the Senate. Okay. Now, wh- where did you stand on? I mean, I know there's been a lot of differing opinions, and some people behind the scenes, at least according to reports uh, within your caucus, have been a little bit uh, uh, skeptical of whether or not this was the right way to go. I, I'm not a fan of it, but I actually think that Pelosi's getting a little bit of, of too much criticism because I, I don't know what difference it has made as long as the, the, the articles eventually go as they now are within you know some reasonable period of time. I, I don't know that she gained much by, uh, by this gambit, but I don't know how much she lost either. What, what, what is your view on why that decision was made and how it's played out? Okay, I don't know why it was made. Uh, when we, <laughs> I don't think anybody does. When when we were voting on, we were notified as to when the two votes on the articles of impeachment were going to be. We all assumed there would be a third vote, which was the vote to transmit. And so it was not until that we got there and got the schedule for that day that we realized, oh, she's not going to send them over there immediately. So there was really no discussion of that with anybody that I'm aware of. Um, as to the impact, I think overall, uh, we Democrats benefited from this for two reasons. One is we had the good fortune of John Bolton coming out and saying he wanted to testify, and these other documents that um, that surfaced that provided additional evidence. So the case for uh, for witnesses and documents became much stronger. And we were able during that three-week period to keep pressing that case to also talk about, you know, just keep hammering, what are they trying to hide? What are they trying to hide with no witnesses? And I, we, we saw some polling uh, this past week that the American people overwhelmingly want witnesses and evidence um, in the 70%, 75% range, and even even about 50% of Republicans do. So I, I think it helped. I think it helped that case. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, a pretty significant amount. Now, now, let me ask you about the managers. I, I'm sure you don't have any inside information, but I'm I'm, I'm taking it you're not going to be one of the managers. I have not been asked. No. Okay. I mean, you're the chairman of the House Budget Committee, so you probably don't have the time. Uh, I mean, that's a disappointment to me because I think you'd be great. Uh, is there been any talk that you know of of Justin Amash being a manager? Um, I haven't heard any. You know, I think everybody assumes that Adam Schiff will be one of them. Right. Uh, in theory, we we all could be managers. She could appoint all 230 Democrats, and uh, probably would get very crowded in the Senate. Right. <laughs> probably wouldn't be able to do that. But um, 
So, you know, we don't have we don't really know at this juncture whether it's going to be 2, 5 or 50. Okay. Now, I mentioned Amash. In general, could you cuz I'm I'm concerned about him. I mean, he's running for re-election now as an independent. Right. In my opinion, he's the only guy that's shown any courage at all, uh you know, at least from the right, that's for sure. Uh in, in all of this is has there been uh, any support on your side for Justin, uh, and and uh, do you think he's going to be uh, targeted for in his reelection situation? Is there is there any semblance on your side of hey, let's try to help this guy out? Or is I guess is my question. No, I haven't heard anything like that. Ugh, ugh, <laughs> I was afraid of that. All yeah. right, um, all right. Now, um, all right. So I think we've we've pretty much handled impeachment. Now you mentioned John Bolton, since so I'll go there next. It's my, you know you know me very well. I'm a cynic uh, at my core, and and I, I especially am cynical when it comes to the way uh, the modern media works. And I think that Bolton is playing a game here. I think Bolton is promoting a book. Uh, he knows damn right well uh, he's never going to testify. There, there's a, a, a number of things that could prevent him from testifying, including, by the way, you know, the president uh, claiming bizarrely executive privilege over his entire testimony, which the which Trump said he would do. Uh, you know, to me, if he really wanted to testify, he would have testified in the House. And uh, I think this is all just a scam. Uh, what's your take on that? You know. On the scale of probabilities, I would say that's uh, in the range of six or seven out of ten. Uh, but I do. Th- the other side of that is, if he were to testify, and we can subpoena him in the house, and, and Nancy has talked about that as well, uh, then, and and I don't know whether the president can declare executive privilege for him. I think he'd have to exert it himself. I mean, he can try, but I'm not sure that means anything. So the, if, in, if in the event that he testifies and he doesn't have anything incriminating to say about the president, then his book is probably <laughs> on the remainder table in a week. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, but... but that's, that, that's, why, that's why I think there's a possibility that he, he does want to... to uh, I think both. I think the book is the main motivator here, and, but if he goes, if he if he does testify and doesn't say anything interesting, then his book's not going to sell. Right, but I don't. What my presumption is, he's he is assuming he's never going to testify, and that yeah, therefore, that, yeah, I think yeah, I think you're probably right. And and so you know, to me, this is this is a game. And uh, and again, just to be clear, he, he could have testified in the house. And you're saying he still might be uh, subpoenaed to testify in the house. Is that what I heard? Right. We we and Nancy said that publicly, and and um, I think it's a distinct possibility. All right. Now, obviously, it's not a, a large leap from Bolton to go to Iran, and um, and so. <laughs> Uh, let me ask you a couple quick questions about Iran. Do you believe, uh, Congressman Yarmouth, that, as the president has said, that uh, Iran and Soleimani were targeting imminently uh, four U.S. embassies for attack, and that's why we took him out? Um, well, so I went to the classified briefing, so I have to be a little bit careful here. What I will say is, if that was true, then we were lied to in the classified briefing. So, the, so, you, so you've seen no evidence that that was true? No. And actually, Secretary of Defense Esper today 
said that he was unaware of any specific threat to embassies. Correct. He did say that, uh, which yeah. is it, which is his way of saying it's not true, right? I mean, that's right. right. <laughs> that's essentially what that means. And so, it is is it your uh, assessment that the that Trump has been exaggerating, ironically, given his. Uh, his position on intelligence agencies for the last three years, that he is exaggerating perhaps greatly uh, what it was the assessment, what the assessment of the intelligence agencies was with regard to this alleged imminent threat. Is that your position? My position is that he is making it all up. He's making it all up. There, that's pretty yeah. clear. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I figured we'd get an honest answer out of you, and we just got one. Okay, so the president's no, just making I, I, it all I, up. I called him on television once. I said, this is the brain fart presidency, and I think that was a brain fart. And he's doing it. Well, let's follow the logic here, though. The only reason why you do that is because you're hiding something, right? I mean, <laughs> Exactly right. And, and so is it then your assessment that the reason he's making up the intelligence is that he has really decided to do this hit purely out of his own perceived self-interest? Is that, your, is that where you are? That is absolutely my position. I, I suspect that he saw the Ayatollah's tweet several weeks ago where he taunted him about his uh, not being willing to take action, and that was a dare to him, and he decided to to kill um, Soleimani. Now, I, I think it was that simple. All right. Now I will agree, uh, John, that this was reckless. This was, and he's lying about uh, what the intelligence was that was the basis for this hit. However, and obviously this can change very quickly. But uh, do you agree? I don't think you will. But do you agree with me that as of right now, as of this moment that we're speaking, this is actually working out quite well for Trump? Do you agree with that? I would have said that yesterday. Uh, but then when I heard that the Iranians had arrested the, um, the ambassador from U.K. to Iran, that changed my mind. I think because that, that basically shows that the, 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 the Iranians are not finished, that they're going to work in other ways to respond. Uh, but I, as of yesterday, I would have said you're absolutely right. See, but I think, and again, I'm not an Iranian expert, although I, I happen to know a lot of uh, people from Iran here in, in the Los Angeles uh, area, mostly from the old regime, but they follow things very closely. I, I, it's my gut reaction that Iran is a paper tiger. I think that they uh, their biggest fear is regime change, that the people in power there just want to remain in power. I think the plane crash disaster has uh, chastened them, understandably so, and that they may just want this whole thing to go away. Uh, and, and then maybe what you're referring to is not an indication of a long-term, and who knows? I mean, I, I, don't, know, I don't think anyone knows, but I think there's a scenario here that at least – through the election that uh, where they because now they fear Trump. Let's be clear. I mean, they, they don't understand yeah. him. They fear him. I, I think that from a political standpoint, if nothing else happens to Americans between now and the election, this is a positive for Trump. I hate that it is. But I, I think that it is politically and um, 
you know, this is going to be the most bizarre analogy you've ever heard, but you'll appreciate it since you're from Louisville. You know, um, after Leon Spinks beat Muhammad Ali, uh, he fought for another like 15 years and lost like 16 more fights because he was the he was the go-to guy for anyone who wanted a a, a victory that was much uh, less uh, important than it was perceived because he was perceived as being the guy who beat Muhammad Ali. Well, Iran, you know, defeated the United States with the uh, hostage crisis in the 70s and uh, and now basically it's you know whenever an emergency break glass uh, you can you can hit on Iran because I don't think they're nearly as tough as as, as perceived much like the the bizarre Leon Spinks analogy uh, so I, maybe my perception of Iran is different than yours uh, but I but do you at least see the scenario here where long term this could really end up helping Donald Trump in re-election? Possibly, although the, the the few polls that have been done since this all happened said there's been no shift in his direction. So uh, even though uh, the, the polling on the actual question of whether he acted right or not is, is kind of mixed, although I saw one where 55% of the people disagreed, disagreed disapproved of the way he's handling the, the Iran situation. So, I, um, you know, I, it may be one of those things which just further... Uh, solidifies his base, doesn't really help him with anybody else. Uh, jury's still out, but I at least admit that that could be the case. Okay, well, let's and, so let's yeah. talk about in our closing moments here. Let's talk about the re-election situation, because a couple months ago, you and I uh, talked, uh, this was off the air, although I ended up writing about it with your permission. You basically said to me that almost any Democratic candidate, you might even have said every, every, every major Democratic candidate, would beat Donald Trump. Uh, do you still believe that today? Um. I, I still believe that. I think there are um, pretty. There's a wide range of risk among the potential Democratic candidates. I think Joe Biden is the least risky uh, in, in terms of risk of losing. I think Bernie Sanders is probably the highest risk of losing. Right. But I, I still think that uh, that Bernie Sanders would end up beating him. And I, I say this only because of what I've seen. In, in terms of the way, the difference in what the electorate's going to be this year. And we saw it, for instance, in Virginia just um, two months ago when they had statewide legislative races. They had a 300% increase over four years earlier in voting, voter turnout among 18 to 35-year-olds. Uh, we've seen that almost everywhere. In California, 45, which was uh, Katie Porter's district, mm-hmm. Orange County, they did an analysis of comparing 14, 2014 to 2018, the midterms. And for instance, voter turnout of 18 to 25 went from 3% in 2014 to 50% in 2018. I think you're going to see that all across the country. And if, you, if young people vote in those kind of percentages, then Trump has absolutely no chance against anybody. But the problem, John, first of all, the big first problem is that that's not Wisconsin, Michigan, and, and Pennsylvania. I know you're going to tell me that the, the voter rolls for Democrats have increased yeah. in those states. I, I get right. that. Um, but but uh, those are the states that matter. We, we, we've never had a presidential election in my lifetime where it's more clear 
what a narrow uh, uh, field of, of battleground states there are. Uh, you guys have to win Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. If you do that, you're almost assured of winning the presidency. Uh, those are states uh, where, first of all, the, the, the average age is older than, than normal. Uh, and uh, those are states where I think Joe Biden uh, plays much, much better than any other candidate you have. You and I are in total agreement on that. I agree with you Absolutely. about Bernie yeah. Sanders. But here's the but, but to your youth vote uh, theory, <laughs> uh, Joe Biden ain't going to get uh, massive amounts of, of youth vote in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Uh, one, I'm not sure how much the youth vote exists uh, in those states, but Biden's not that kind of guy. He's not he's not appealing to to that demographic. So so I'm not sure that that's that relevant to who's going to win. I am becoming increasingly concerned, and you know I'm a pessimist by nature, but but I am I am increasingly concerned. In fact, I think he has a much better chance as of right now uh, than he did uh, at the same time period in 2016, uh, and uh, and and it's mainly because I got I, I other than Biden. I don't see anybody beating him in those three states, especially in Pennsylvania, uh, a state I know exceedingly well. And 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 that's it. So I've gone from, uh, you know, thinking that you were a little bit crazy with your every Democrat can beat him to, to now I'm of the belief that Biden is the only candidate that can beat him. I think he beats every other candidate right now, based upon where we are currently. We've we got an economy that's perceived as booming. We're at peacetime. He's killing terrorists. Uh, he, he beats impeachment. He beats the Mueller report. Uh, I, 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 he's doing the judge thing, which gets conservatives all excited. I, I'm, ta- I'm sorry, John. I think he is an, a far more formidable foe in 2020, especially against the non-Biden car- uh, candidate, uh, than I think you guys are giving him credit for and so let me since so so we're almost out of time i want to ask you a specific question since we're we're pretty much in the same church here different pew when it comes to to biden you tell me about how democrats are perceiving biden and ukraine do but do democrats tend to perceive what's what happened with trump's impeachment as proof that biden's the most formidable candidate because that's why trump wanted him ousted wanted it, wanted ukraine to dig up dirt on him or do they see this somehow as tainting him because of this uh, alleged charge of corruption kind of like the hillary email issue which uh, you know should not have but did dominate the 2016 uh, campaign narrative Wh- which do you think it is for your fellow democrats i don't yeah i, I can speak for the people i talk to in my district and i can speak for my colleagues in congress so I'm not speaking for a lot of right. Democrats around the country. I, I think most of my colleagues and my my conversations with routine Democrats around my district is that the only thing that Biden, the only people who Ukraine, those Ukraine uh, coloring have um, affected are Trump's people already. That. It's not going to move any Democrats or independents away from Biden. And the polling pretty much substantiates that. You know, Biden, and even in Wisconsin, Biden, last week a poll came out, Biden was Fox News. Mm-hmm. Biden was, what, five or six points ahead of Trump in Wisconsin? Right. As a matter of fact, all the major contenders were, even though a couple of them by one or two points. Um, so um i don't think i don't think democrats see it as something that's going to move a lot of voters but democrats know this wasn't a trick by trump right i mean he really does fear biden 
Do, 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 oh, absolutely. Okay. Oh, absolutely. And, and I, I think you talked to mo- most of my colleagues in the House. If you ask them who is, who is our, again, who is our least risky nominee, they will, even if they're for somebody else, they will say Biden. By the way, one last question since we're, we're running out of time real quick, and I forgot to ask you, since you're the chairman of the Budget Committee. Trump said yesterday that, um, that Saudi Arabia has paid us a billion dollars, which is now in the bank, uh, for the use of our troops. I don't know if you saw it or not. Um, but as the, head of the chairman of the Budget Committee, what do you think he meant by that? I'm sure going to ask the question, um, and, and I think that statement requires some uh, uh, congressional investigation, to be honest, uh, because, um, first of all, we don't want to turn our troops into mercenaries for foreign countries, even right. though, you know, indirectly, some of them are and always have been, but uh, this sounds pretty direct, and, uh, and that's not part of any budgeting that we've done. So you have no knowledge of a billion dollars from Saudi Arabia being put in a U.S. bank? No. I'm sure he's making that up, too. Oh, okay. All right. Well, then nothing to worry, <laughs> nothing to worry about that. It's just a I lie. Think we, I, I think we need to ask that. We, we need to get further information about that. All right. John, always great to talk to you. I know you've got to get going. Uh, I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. So picking up on what Congressman Yarmouth and I just discussed there with regard to that statement from Donald Trump on using United States troops as mercenaries, and I think Congressman Yarmouth uh, really encapsulated that pretty darn well, and it was pretty stunning that the chairman of the House Budget Committee is saying he has no knowledge of this, and he's uh, very willing to say, you know what, I think he just made it up. Well, here is what uh, President Trump said yesterday in that interview to which we referred. We're sending more to Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia is paying us for it. You know, we're doing something that nobody's ever done. I said to Saudi Arabia, we have a very good relationship with Saudi Arabia. I said, listen, you're a very rich country. You want more troops? I'm going to send them to you, but you've got to pay us. They're paying us. They've already deposited $1 billion in the bank. We are going to help them, but these rich countries have to pay for it. South Korea gave us $500 million. They never gave us any. They gave us $500 million. I said, you got to help us along. We have 32,000 soldiers in South Korea protecting you from North Korea. You've got to pay. And they gave us $500 million. It's so, it's just so amazing to me that we have a president of the United States that the chairman of the House Budget Committee has no problem saying, you know what, what the president just said there about a billion dollars going into the bank from Saudi Arabia is just made up. And that he's going to uh, at least investigate to some degree, whether it's an official investigation or not, I don't know. Uh, It's just astonishing that he's just willing to just make stuff up. I mean, he just makes it up as he goes along. And to say specifically that it's in the bank, uh, like that's, that's quite a lie, if in fact it's a lie. And, you know, I'm pretty confident that John would at least have some idea what the hell Trump was talking about if it was true. But, uh, and so I I fully have confidence in John's assessment that that's just made up. But let's pretend for a second it's not made up, since it is the President of the United States in a television interview making a very specific claim about a billion dollars being in the bank. That would be incredibly dangerous. That would, in fact 
be treating the United States military as direct mercenaries. Now, it does get a little bit uh, vague as to what you mean by mercenaries, but that's as direct as I've ever heard it. A foreign country, by the way, a country that uh, certainly had its hands, at least indirectly, in the 9-11 attacks against us. I mean, most of the the hijackers were Saudi Arabian. There are There's a lot of credible allegations that the Saudis at least knew of the attacks that were coming on the United States on 9-11. But so it's not exactly our, our greatest ally. And our troops are at their disposal, and they're paying us a billion dollars. Well, as a mob boss, and that's essentially what Donald Trump is, as I refer to him often as Donnie Soprano, as any mob boss knows, when somebody is paying you that much money for something, they own you. Correct. They own you. Whether it's in paper or not, they own you. For instance, by the way, uh, you know, they can get away with killing uh, Washington Post columnists like uh, with the Khashoggi uh, slaughter, and you're not going to do anything to them. So they own you. So there's a philosophical problem, but there's also the there, there's an issue of, okay, where's the money? And then there's the issue of, did he just make this all up? Uh, and this is just one statement in one television interview that was a friendly interview. And 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 the weirdest part of this is Trump thinks that this is a, a mic drop because his whole view of the world is that money is everything. Correct. If you're getting paid a lot of money, you must be doing something right. Well, uh, in this case, no, partially because we don't even know we're getting paid the money. And if we are, where the hell is it? And what the hell is this bank? And I, uh, I feel confident that uh, Congressman Yarmouth will get to the bottom of that. And so um, there we at least have that on the, on the good side of the news here. But that was just extraordinary. Just also, though, in the bigger picture, I do believe that, and granted, this can change in a heartbeat, but I do believe that uh, this Iran situation is working out well for him. He is, uh, if he has a superpower, it's in picking his enemies very well and in having an enormous amount of luck. And in picking Iran, I think he picked a good enemy for reasons that I alluded to in the interview with uh, Congressman Yarmouth. I I think they are incompetent. I don't think that they are nearly as potent as most people think that they are, thus my bizarre uh, Leon Spinks analogy uh, with Congressman Yarmouth. But I I I believe that this plane crash which is just tragic, is a perfect example of that. And the idea that this is Trump's fault, I mean, there's been some people that have been blaming Donald Trump for the, uh, the civilian airliner, which ironically was a Ukrainian airline uh, with the many, many Canadians on it, that somehow this was Trump's fault because he created the pressure on the Iranians that caused them to accidentally shoot this airliner down. That's not what happened. Now, let's be clear. If we were attacking Iran itself. If we were firing ballistic missiles into Iran at that time, I would totally support this concept, okay? That's collateral damage of a decision that Trump made, and therefore that blood is at least partially on his hands. But that's not what was happening here. What was happening was Iran was targeting the United States in a completely different country, doing so poorly, whether it was on purpose or not, 
I don't know. We know if we know. I, I'm now of the position that this was all kind of a charade that uh, Iran purposely didn't uh, hit American troops because they didn't really want to escalate. They just wanted to show that they could fire ballistic missiles and try to save face from this situation because of the Soleimani uh, hit. But uh, but regardless, uh, that's not what occurred here. It was was Iran being attacked. They were attacking our bases in another country. The idea that they would then be uh, forced, quote-unquote, by pressure and confusion into shooting down a civilian airliner, that's on them. That's not Trump's fault. Correct. And yet many on the left and the media have at least been implying this, including some Democratic presidential candidates, which is a huge a mistake because I think to the average person that dog just doesn't hunt. That just doesn't make a damn uh, bit of sense. And so uh, the reality here is that right now, I think the most likely scenario is Trump gets away with a reckless, uh, ill-advised, and and a decision that was not based on good intelligence, as Congressman Yarmouth just said. He thinks he made it up about the whole four embassy thing. The four embassy thing that Iran was targeting imminently doesn't even make any damn sense because that's an act of full-out war. You go after four American embassies, that's war. And there's no indication that Iran wanted an actual war with the United States, which we've seen from their reaction to the, the hit on Soleimani. So none of that makes any damn sense, and I agree that, that, that Trump is totally making that up for his own selfish purposes. Correct. Uh, and it's ironic as hell because, of course, this is a guy who's been disparaging the intelligence agencies for three years now for his own selfish interest. And that's really always the bottom line with Trump. What's in his selfish interest? That's what he's going to do. What he perceives to be in his self-interest today is what's going to motivate him to do whatever it takes to facilitate that self-interest. That's the exact opposite of what you want in a president of the United States, which is why I have always believed he is literally and uniquely unfit for the office. Now, in a moment, I'll have a few closing thoughts on this episode of the podcast regarding the current political situation and where we go from here. But first, here's an important interview I did with Tom Bauer, the founder of our sponsor, Imbue CBD. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and for your sponsorship of the program. Please uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Imbue Botanicals. Sure, John. Imbue Botanicals produces really the most extensive line of premium clinical-grade full-spectrum CBD products, including tinctures, capsules, topical lotions and salves, and even award-winning beauty products. They're available in multiple strengths for both people as well as pets. Our premium Colorado-grown hemp products are non-GMO, cruelty-free, and even vegan. Now, a lot of people might not be that familiar yet with CBD. It's getting a lot of publicity. But for those who aren't, what is CBD and why do you guys think it's so important? CBD is short for cannabidiol. It's one of the 115 or so cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. It's generally accepted as the cannabinoid or, or the element, basically, that provides the health benefits for cannabis. But science has shown really that CBD works best when combined with all the other cannabinoids and the natural terpenes that are found naturally in the plant, which is why our products are full spectrum, meaning they offer a full cadre of the, all the cannabinoids and terpenes for maximum effectiveness. Now, Tom, you mentioned that Imbue uses hemp. Tell our audience, if you will, the difference between hemp and marijuana, and why your product is not the latter. 
great. John, it's really important to understand this. You know, we're all familiar with medical marijuana. Our products are, are not made from marijuana. They're actually made from hemp. Basically, hemp and marijuana are both the cannabis sativa plant. The difference is that hemp contains extremely low levels of THC, which is the cannabinoid that makes you high when you ingest or smoke marijuana. By law, hemp must contain 0.3% or less of THC by dry weight. So, so low, basically, that you can't get high from the product. So, in essence, basically, with hemp, you get all the health benefits of medical marijuana without the high or the psychoactive effect of THC. I should also add here that Congress last year passed the 2018 Farm Bill, which essentially legalized hemp federally and descheduled all the non-THC cannabinoids. So, Essentially, it's, it's, uh, it's legal, which obviously people want to know. You know, can, can I buy it? Can I use it? It's legal. Now, when, when I use it, it's really helped my sleeping. I've only just started using uh, some of your products. But tell us, uh, what are some of the benefits that our listeners might find if they, if they use Imbue Botanical products? Really great question, John. We're actually not allowed to make claims about CBD or products per the FDA. Just an aside, if your listeners come across sites out there that are making health claims, we should always just avoid them. Just you don't want to deal with, with folks like that. It's, it's not legal to do that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't health benefits to CBD. We at MU Botanicals always encourage our customers to do their own research. There is a ton of information and studies available on the Internet. You want to talk to your physician, your independent pharmacist, even your veterinarian. You know, become informed. We've seen some absolutely amazing things personally and with our customers. Obviously, you know, the onus, if you will, is on each individual to, to go out there and, and do the kind of research to see if it may be a fit for the kind of things that they're experiencing. Also, you know, check out our website, which has a ton of additional information as well. And that website is? It's www.imbuecbd.com. It's www.imbuecbd.com. Now, you mentioned the FDA, and just before we taped this interview, there was a news story where the FDA put out a warning and sent letters to, I think, 15 different CBD companies. Yours was not one of them. It was perceived as the FDA basically, I don't know, seemed to be like, backing away a little bit from CBD. What was your interpretation of what the FDA did and and how should our listeners interpret it? That's an extremely good question as well, John. And I think first and foremost is what the FDA is doing, especially when they're sending out letters to companies that they send letters out to, is doing their job. Their job is to really protect the American public from, you know, basically, you know, drugs that shouldn't be there, that are doing what they're supposed to do, that can cause harm, and also making sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. In in the case of these letters, these companies were making health claims simply because of how FDA operates and and the way that, uh, you know, CBD, which is basically a kind of a a brand new uh, thing for FDA, they're not allowed to make. You know, I'm glad that they're doing that. You know, we never make claims uh, at Imbue Botanicals. That's something that that is, again, is, is goes back to the customer to do a lot of their own research on. They also came out with some basic overviews and essentially said you should really know what you're doing before you take CBD. It's not necessarily something you should be taking in water and in food products. You should basically get the kind of information that you need and talk to your healthcare team, your physician, your pharmacist, your, your veterinarian to make sure that there's a medical professional, you know, kind of assisting in the process. Now, in my experience, having used the product and seen the packaging and everything, you guys are totally first class, but first class comes with some expense. You guys are a little bit more expensive than your competitors. Tell us, tell us why you bring more value. We are more expensive than some folks, and 
certainly not more expensive than others, but uh, but we're we are a higher price product, and the reason for that is, is where we grow, how we extract, how we formulate our products. We do that for maximum effectiveness, and you know what our folks tell us, and whether they're the pharmacies that we sell to, or the customers that use our product, or patients who use our product every day, they tell us that the product works and works better than things that uh, other products that they bought. It's more expensive to do it correctly, but ultimately that's obviously what customers want. If you're going to spend the money, they want something that works, and that's what our products do. So, Tom, if our listeners want to buy your products and, or learn more about them, where should they go? Go to our website. It's www.imbuecbd. That's www.imbuecbd.com, imbuecbd.com. Tom, thanks so much for your time and your sponsorship. John, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate it. Now, I've mentioned previously on this podcast that I bet back in 20, I think it was 18, a member of the state-run pro-Trump media who is very anti-Trump, believe it or not, those people exist. I bet this person who's an old friend of mine that Donald Trump would still be in office on January 1st, 2020. And uh, I won the bet, obviously. This was a bet that this person actually doubled because they were so sure that Trump was not going to make it all the way to January 1st, 2020 as president of the United States, whether they resigned or were removed from office or died or whatever. And uh, I was confident that that was not going to be the case for a number of reasons I've spoken about previously on the program. Well, uh, I finally got the, I shouldn't say finally, this person paid up pretty quickly, but I did get in the mail uh, the proceeds from the bet, which was a gift certificate for $100 to the Cheesecake Factory. So my my family and I will be uh, eating a free dinner at the Cheesecake Factory because Donald Trump is, is still uh, in office. Now, I mentioned this. Uh, for a couple reasons. One, to tie up that loose end. Two, uh, back with regard to this idea of blaming Trump for the uh, Iran shooting down the airliner, I guess by the same logic, if when my family and I go to the Cheesecake Factory and we get in a, if we were to get into a car accident, I'm guessing that that would be Donald Trump's fault, right? right? Based upon the logic that's being used here. That would be his fault, because if he hadn't still been in office, I wouldn't have won the bet, and therefore we wouldn't be going to the Cheesecake Factory, and we wouldn't have gotten into the car accident. That's the kind of absurd logic that some, especially on the left, are using with regard to that downed uh, uh, civilian airliner that uh, took off from Tehran and was shot down by the Iranian military. Now, as far as the political situation is concerned, a lot of talk now about Bernie Sanders. I found it interesting that Congressman Yarmouth proactively brought up that he would be the most risky of the top Democratic contenders. I agree with that. I'm not sure why all of a sudden we're getting a lot of Bernie Sanders talk. Maybe it's just his turn. Uh, But I do believe that Bernie Sanders would get beaten rather badly by Donald Trump, maybe not horrendously, but he would certainly be defeated uh, in the Electoral College. And I, and I guess the danger of the Bernie Sanders situation is this. It is perceived that Bernie Sanders is well-known by the American public because he ran for president in 2016, did pretty well against Hillary Clinton, and, uh, and he's been around for quite a while. And so there's a perception that people know who he is. 
And therefore, the, the numbers, the polling numbers that indicate that his numbers against Trump are often almost as good, sometimes even better, but mostly almost as good as Joe Biden's are, gets taken seriously. And that's concerning to me because I don't think those numbers are legitimate. The numbers between Biden and Trump are very legitimate. Everybody knows who Joe Biden is. Everybody knows, uh, you know, he was Barack Obama's vice president. There's zero ambiguity about what he brings to the table, both pro and con. To me, I don't even know, and I've not seen any polling data on this because I don't think anything's been done. I wish someone would do it. I don't know how many people even know that Bernie Sanders is a socialist, that he's not even technically a member of the Democratic Party, that he runs for Senate as an independent, that he refers to himself as a Democratic socialist. That alone, once every American knows that, and they would certainly know it in a general election, I think his numbers against Trump go down precipitously. And my concern would be, if he somehow won the nomination, that it would be too late. Because that, the, winning the nomination would be based upon this fake concept that he's somehow electable when it's actually the opposite, just as Congressman Yarmouth indicated. Now, Trump's numbers are, while they're not dramatically improving, they are solidifying. His approval rating is up about two points in recent months, whether that's because of impeachment or other factors or the economy or a combination of all that, I don't know. But I think what we now know, as of mid-January, is that barring a black swan event, Donald Trump is not going to get blown out in this election. That, that scenario has now been taken off the table because the economy is not going to tank, and unless something really goes wrong with Iran and he gets blamed for it, which is possible, but barring a black swan event like that, I don't see a scenario where Donald Trump gets crushed. And that's problematic because if he's not getting crushed, that means he can win. If he's not getting crushed, that means he could lose and not concede. Both of those scenarios are terrible uh, for the country and for the world. And so I think it's important that we start to at least recognize that even though it's a long way off, presidential elections are like aircraft carriers. They don't tend to change, especially with people like Trump, who everyone has a very, very, very strong opinion about. They don't change overnight unless you have a ginormous event. And uh, and so I think it's start it's time to start accepting the reality that there is almost no chance as of right now, based upon the current factual record, that Donald Trump gets blown out and that his uh, uh, one term administration, even if he were to lose, is somehow wiped from history. That's not going to happen. He is not going to get blown out. And that has major implications. Now, as always is the case, we end uh, this edition of the podcast with our updated uh, percentages on the chances of him not finishing his first term in office. I'm going to put that still at just a very low 6% number. And psychologically, while I'm concerned about uh, Trump's reelection bid, I'm still not willing to go to 50% yet on the idea that he will be reelected. I'm going to keep that at 49%, largely because it still looks pretty good for Joe Biden to be the Democratic nominee. But a big debate on Tuesday in Iowa, I think, will uh, will be telling, uh, especially since now the, the number of candidates in that debate has been narrowed down to just seven. Uh, but that'll do it for this edition of the Individual One Podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. Until next time, my name is John Ziegler. You're listening to the Global Story Network.